You're listening to the Monocle Daily, first broadcast on the 18th of October 2023 on Monocle Radio. Should the private sector get involved in the Israel-Hamas war, or are they condemned to be part of it? China's economy grows faster than expected, and facilitating your optimal auditory journey going forward, we'll be taking an axe to corporate communications jargon. I'm Emma Nelson. The Monocle Daily starts now. And a very warm welcome to the Monocle Daily, coming to you from our studios here at Midori House in London. I'm Emma Nelson, and my guests, Phil Clark and Patty Cohen, will discuss the day's biggest stories, including the future of News Corp post Rupert Murdoch. Stay tuned. All that and more coming up right here on the Monocle Daily. And what a delight it is to have Phil Clark, Professor of International Politics at SOAS University of London and Patty Cohen, Global Economics Correspondent at the New York Times, around the monocle table this wet and windy Wednesday afternoon. A very warm welcome to you. Thank you. Good evening, Emma. Uh, you've, you've done this before on the Daily, but is this the first time you've met? Yes, I it think is. so. Excellent. So, right, we've got a bit of a blind date going on for the next 30 <laughs> minutes. How, how have our days been? Patty, how, how have you been? Uh, I've been good, actually. Um, and the, the, the wet weather was kind of a shock because I just came back from Marrakesh where there was the World Bank and IMF meetings. And it was about 100 degrees there. So, okay. so and very dry. <laughs> dry in absolutely every single sense, I suspect. Yes. 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 OK, yes. well, welcome back to wet London. Wet London. <laughs> um, and how about you, Phil? Um, you, you have come in bravely on a, on a, on a bicycle and you're as you're as you're as wet as a fish. I am. I'm absolutely soaking here. I got back from Adelaide um, a few days ago. It was also about 30 degrees. I'm still slightly jet lagged, as my students found out when I tried to lecture this afternoon. It was very fuzzy in all respects. What were you trying to teach them today? Uh, we were talking about transitional justice, uh, re- you know, responding to atrocities. You know, the, the, the kind of friendly topics, Emma, that you, you know I, I usually bring it, to you. You, in the you are the horseman of the, the apocalypse on most days, so we'll try and brighten things <laughs> that, up just that, that a little bit. That is my nickname. I'm delighted. <laughs> to have you both today. Let's begin with an issue of geopolitics, ethics and economics. McDonald's has said it will feed Israeli troops for free. Any soldier visiting an Israeli branch of the fast food chain will be offered a meal free of charge. The dietary effects of this notwithstanding, the reaction from McDonald's franchises in other parts of the world has been swift and condemnatory. Saudi Arabia, Oman, Kuwait, the UAE, Jordan and Turkey have all disassociated themselves from the move and in most places have pledged aid to Gaza in response. Um, Patty, just explain to us, this is a, this is, this sort of explains that, that McDonald's operates through national franchises, doesn't it? Yes, I mean, this, you know, when we talk about companies taking positions and getting in political pro- trouble, like, uh, you know, a, a big example was Budweiser in the United States because they uh, were using a transgender person in their uh, advertising and that caused a big backlash among their their regular customers. This is really different. This, you know, as as you mentioned, McDonald's or franchises, these are individual owners um, deciding on their own, not on behalf of Donald, McDonald's, to donate meals to soldiers. And so, uh, you know, it's I, I think it's more of a local thing. It's not surprising. There are Israeli owners. Um, and so, I just don't think that there is the same kind of like tricky issues that that come 
that come up when you're talking about corporations taking particular political stands? It's a, it isn't, it's a strange situation to find yourself in because if you are McDonald's in Israel, you are probably doing something, which is a matter of national pride and generosity, isn't it? Because when your country goes to war, you've got to free, feed your troops, admittedly with Big Macs. Goodness knows how, how, how well it will march on that particular stomach, but we're not here to question the nutritional capacity of a, McDo- of a Big Mac. But it is generally something that you do as a, as a gesture of generosity. No, indeed. I think what's interesting about this story is that it's now a fight within McDonald's itself. It, 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 you know, I guess the, the next international you know, meeting of CEOs of McDonald's is going to be quite interesting because of, of this kind of fight. But, but I guess because it's McDonald's, it takes on a much larger significance. It, it sprawls way outside the company and, and hence there's been so much media attention on it um, about the role of corporations in, in taking a stance during an ongoing conflict. People might think that fast food is a fairly neutral thing, but I don't think anything is neutral in, in a conflict like this. So perhaps it's not that surprising that that businesses and corporations are are getting dragged into the fight as well. You talked a little bit there a moment ago, Patty, about how this is probably not that big, but actually given the fact that it is a global brand and the speed at which nations and communities are being asked to take sides in this catastrophe is, is really can't be underestimated, can it? I mean, McDonald's has found itself in a big, big problem here because there are so many countries which have come out and have condemned Israel's actions and now saying they're going to give to Gaza. That, it just exposes the real, real problems here, doesn't it? Yes, I just think it's important that, that, that the listeners understand, uh, you know, and, and un- unfortunately everything gets thrown in the same basket and, and there's differences, you know, for instance... There were boycotts, you know, decades ago of, of grape growers in California because of the conditions of the workers. That was something the, the company was directly responsible for. Or Coors Beer, an, a, another that used to be a big contributor to uh, right-wing conservatives. And so that those were boycotts that were very pointed at, at actions that the company was taking. Um, and even the issues that have come up in the United States about companies either supporting about abortion rights or, uh, you know, as I mentioned before, uh, transgender, um, that's different than, you know, a company kind of publicly taking a stand on an issue that has nothing to do with it. And, you know, in general, I think, companies should not be taking political stands <laughs> along with a lot of other institutions. Uh, but, you know, again, it's, it's as you said, it has bubbled up because it's McDonald's, but it, it was not a corporate decision. Um, tell us a little bit more about what you, you sort of, this now leads in terms of what example this sets to other com- companies. Because when I read about this, the first thing I thought of, well, this harks back to but a year ago when countries companies were asked to get out of Russia very quickly. And there were quite a few companies which sort of stayed a little bit longer than perhaps there were. There were a couple of hotel chains which were waiting and, and other na- retailers as well were waiting for one to jump because they recognised that actually leaving a market isn't just a powerful political gesture, but it is also financially damaging because you're cutting off a huge source of income. Yeah, that's right. I mean, there were a couple of vodka companies that that were staying involved um, in in a couple of Swedish companies, I think, um, that that got wrapped over the knuckles uh, for that kind of behaviour. I think one of the 
One of the things I found interesting in these reports around um, McDonald's um, in Israel was this statistic that 41% of Americans think that businesses should take a stand on current events. And 30% of Americans um, think that they should take a stand on international conflicts. And I thought that that's incredibly high. That's That, that says something too about the the, the, the idea, especially in the, in the US context, of, of businesses as ethical actors who, whose stance on these questions really matters. And it's it's intriguing to me, you know, that, that we put that much store in the behavior of corporations, many of whom have really questionable ethical practices themselves, the way they treat their workers, uh, their relationship to the environment, all of that sort of thing. So I think the other thing that gets put a spotlight on here is the faith that many people put in business actors to tell us anything sensible about really complex things like <laughs> conflict. It's kind of, it's sort of intriguing to me, this latest Gallup poll. Yeah, come on, take a stand. I was quite, I'm quite surprised by, by that high proportion of people saying that actually if you go to H&M or if you go to McDonald's or whatever, I will go to your shop because of the way that you believe we should be treating certain places, certain situations. I mean, look, people have, uh, or I should say consumers have always had the power to, you know, vote with their feet, let's say, you know, and put their money uh, in in a company that they think is good or or not. But I do think that this is kind of in, in the age, and particularly in the United States, where, you know, the kind of the level of political discourse has just degenerated to such a, a terrible degree and, you know, that that there's just so little kind of talking across the table or across the aisle. And th- to me, this is just another aspect of it. I, I do just want to say about Russia, which you mentioned, um, and it's like in everything. There's there's companies that are terrible. There's companies that have good intentions. There are companies that maybe try to do the right thing. I, I've interviewed a lot of those companies, and um, you know, for some of them, number one, it was not even if they wanted to get out, it was not possible right away because Russia has put a lot of restrictions on that. Some of them were concerned about their employees um, and you know whether they would have jobs or not. So it's like all of these ethical issues, it's it's really what's interesting are the details and the subtleties. And nobody ever wants to kind of dig into those things because they don't, they're not a slogan. So Phil has just mentioned what it might be like in the AGM, the global AGM of McDonald's. I mean, people don't want to dig into this, but clearly McDonald's has decided, McDonald's Israel has decided that digging is, going, is something that's going to have to be done. I mean, if you're in the room with these various countries, franchises all getting together to try to come out of this. How, as a company, do you come out of this? Retaining your brand integrity when you know that arguably 50% of your consumers are going to support the Israeli position and 50% are going to support the likes of Saudi and UAE and Oman. I mean, I think it's 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 really tough. And I, I'm curious to see what corporate McDonald's could actually do about this particular thing. I mean, you know, what are they going to tell franchise owners? You you can't do giveaway foods if there's an earthquake, you know, or a hurricane. You're not going to give it to, you're not going to food out to, uh, you know, survivors. If there's a an attack, if there's a shooting in a school or, you know, a, a police, you're not going to give free meals to, to cops or... I just, it's just, it really gets into a muddle. And it, it's hard for me to see how you can get a policy on this. Um, but, you know, obviously a lot of what McDonald's, like every other corporation does, they do, it's it's performance art. You know, you have to go through the 
the uh, kabuki drama of showing that you're taking concerns seriously and we're going to bring it up at our corporate meeting, even though I'm not sure there was really a resolution to this. It might be brushed under a carpet. Thank you for that, Patty. Now, let's move on to another story that we've been looking at, which is the headlines of late not looking good for China's economy with an overinflated property market and a slower than hoped recovery following the pandemic. But confounding expectations, China's gross domestic product grew 4.9% year on year in the third quarter, and the economy has expanded by 1.3% on a quarterly basis. Um, Phil, this is this is a surprise, isn't it? I mean, let's always say I mean, one never knows exactly how transparent these figures are. But the you know reading reading the waters, it would suggest that this is a good thing for China. A good thing for China and a good thing for all of China's partners, a lot of whom I think were panicking at, at the, all of these predictions of a slowing Chinese economy. I mean, I've just come back from Australia where the entire national economy has been propped up by the Chinese infrastructure boom for the last 15 years. And there's a, I mean, finally, it's forcing Australia to have a kind of proper climate change conversation because there, there was perceived to be no guarantee that Australian coal could keep being sent to China. Um, the various African countries where I do my research likewise, have already started to think about reorienting away from their over-dependence on, on, on Chinese loans. Um, th- those are the kind of global ripples of, of, of what was expected to be a Chinese downturn. Um, but I think there will now be you know some degree of optimism that perhaps the Chinese economy is more robust than a lot of people feared. And that's a good story for China, but it's also going to be a good story for, for all of its major partners. Patty, what was your reaction when you first saw these numbers? I mean, an element of surprise, but have we been concerned? confounding overly negative expectations? I mean, look, let me put it this way. And I I just mentioned I came from Marrakesh for, you know, there were thousands of representatives and economists and everybody giving projections and estimates of what the future economy is going to look like. And of course, nobody really knows. But um, the... But but let's put it this way, the entire global economy in most countries is slowing down. Um, There was just unanimous agreement on that. China's this uh, quarter, these past three months, have been better than most people thought, and that's that's good. And particularly, uh, as you were mentioning, it's it's good for all of these other countries because it's important to remember China is really like an engine of global economy growth, not just in the region, but in Europe too. Germany, for instance, is a huge trade partner of China. Um, on the other hand, you know, you also have to look at what the base here, what are you comparing it to, right? So you're saying, oh, well, it grew over 4% since last year. Well, last year was almost negative growth, I think, uh, because of COVID. They still were in lockdown and such. So, you know, they're, they're coming back um kind of back to where they were a little bit. And going forward, the question is whether they can keep up that sustained pace of growth. And I think that's that's questionable given the housing problems. And when you were ranging around the, the, the corridors at the IMF in Marrakesh, how often was... What was China- outdoors? <laughs> Excellent. Wow, sunny. Um, <laughs> the external corridors of the, of the IMF. Um, how much was China mentioned in every sentence? I mean, was it in every sentence? Was it every every briefing? Or, or are people trying to do what they can not to be so dependent or so so closely watching China? I mean, look, you know, these meetings are gigantic. Every country uh, is there, every region. There's tons of meetings on on everything that, that you could possibly uh, think about. Um, and obviously China, because it is such an incredible economic power, is at the center of a lot of it. Um, 
you know, when it comes to we're in this world now where economics and politics are colliding in a way that we haven't seen in a long time. And China is kind of the center of that, certainly uh, in terms of a rivalry with the United States. And so it, there's, you know, in, in in terms of geopolitics, it's there's always a kind of mixed feelings, at least from the American perspective, which is, uh, you know, you want China to do well because it is an engine of global growth with a, and with a lot of a lot of allies in Western countries. Um, but there's also concern about China becoming too economically powerful. And so, uh, you know, it really depends on kind of where, what your perspective is and where you're coming from. And that fear of China becoming too economically powerful, I think anybody who's monitored Belt and Road will have seen the absolute very tangible um, consequences of this. And Patty just there saying, you know, the diffusion of econ economics and politics is closer than ever. But how much is the success of China's economy going to filter through to Belt and Road? And that feeling now that as perhaps Belt and Road slows down a little, um, I think I read somewhere saying that Belt and Road now just becomes the world's biggest debt collection agency. <laughs> I think that is definitely the fear in a lot of African capitals, um, th that African economies have become so overextended with, with Chinese debt that they're looking down the barrel of, of decades of these repayments. Um, it was interesting looking at some of the comments from Xi Jinping at, at this Belt and Road Forum yesterday, where he... He, I think for the first time, certainly that I can remember, he addressed the problem of a perceived Chinese neo-colonialism, a big concern in Africa that, that China comes in and, and acts exactly as the colonial powers did, incredibly extractive, pressuring African states to remodel their economies in particular ways, sometimes very unclear benefits for local populations. A lot of African populations and states have been screaming at China for years saying, we need more equal deals, we need more respect from you. This is one of the first signals, I think, that maybe China's finally hearing that, that as Belt and Road starts to diminish in importance around the world, there's a little bit of Chinese humility starting to creep into the language. It'll be interesting to see how that plays out in the actual physical relationships economically that they have with African governments in particular. And this perhaps, Patty, would be a really good opportunity for the United States, because this has been an area where the US has really needed to play catch up. It's the speed of the US's international influence has been has been nothing like what what China has managed to achieve. I, I mean, it's it's very complicated. Like 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 all of these issues. Um, uh, I know I'm supposed to be here to kind of explain it and simplify it. I think I feel like I'm, I'm making it more confusing. But um, so 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 first of all, you know, the, the lender, the global lender, was the International Monetary Fund, uh, which is. You know, made up, dominated by the West. The, the U.S. is uh, the biggest, of course, the only one with veto power. And that has been the lender of last resort. And all of these, you know, all of the lending that we've seen going on, some of it terrible, um, some of it useful for decades has been coming from that. So China is really kind of caught up. China's a very recent entrant into this whole game. The, 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 uh, but the, the other problem that comes up from this is, you know, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, you had a debt crisis. I was just in Ghana writing about the debt crisis, in fact, um, which is getting an IMF bailout. Uh, you know, you got kind of like there were six major lenders. You got them all in a room and you kind of hammered out a deal. Now you've got like a thousand 
lenders. China is one of them, and China is very uh, veiled in terms of the details of its lending, how much, what are the conditions, and such. So you don't even know what's on the table. And uh, you know, there's all of these questions. Usually, when you do a loan negotiation, you know the the lenders are supposed to take what they call a haircut, meaning you lose money. And China does not want to lose money, but the IMF in the West doesn't also want to be lending the money so that China can be paid back. And so, again, going back to this politics and economics colliding, uh, uh, we have that again in this case. For someone who's also struggling to explain it, I think you did a rather mar- mar- <laughs> masterful job there. Thank you, Patty. That's something to listen back to later and write stuff down. Um, I'm joined today by Phil Clark, Professor of International Politics at SOAS University of London, and by Patty Cohen, Global Economics Correspondent at the New York Times. This is the Monocle Daily with me, Emma Nelson. And now... It seems that every time we want to talk about the Murdochs, we all instinctively reach for the succession theme tune. There's very good reason for that, because the fusion of fact and fiction is becoming ever more blurred. But when he announced his retirement, it took a little while for us all to fully count the size of Rupert Murdoch's empire. There seems to be precious few outlets which haven't been touched in some way in the US, the UK and his home nation of Australia. Well, now Mr Murdoch is under pressure to split these operations. Right, who wants to have a go at telling us how things are supposed to be split. This is an activist investor who's come along and says you need to divide this all up. Phil is giving me his silent hysterics. I'm not sure whether that's eagerness or a desperate well, I'm look sitting, at Patty I'm sitting, to bail, I'm sitting across the out. table from an actual economist. Right? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm, you know, I'm willing to give you the political scientist take on what's going on over there. That seems make... like a fool's errand. Okay. <laughs> I just want to make clear I'm not an economist. Yeah, that, I just play you're, one you're in the newspaper. You're at least economically yes, literate, right. which is right. one up on me, Patty. Yes. So. You have economic in your job title, Patty. Right. I'm really sorry about that. <laughs> so, so, so let me put this in a little bit of context, you know, and, and, and succession is actually very appropriate for this because this is all part of the succession battle in a way. And, uh, and you know, you have to go back a little bit, uh, which is that Rupert Murdoch had wanted to merge his two major corporations, Fox and News Corp. Um, you know, he they were separated 10 years ago and now he wants... Put the, he wanted to put them back together. And some saw that as a way to kind of ensure the dominance of his chosen successor, which is his son, Lachlan. Um, that deal was rejected because the shareholders on both sides felt like we're not going to really get our money. It's the, the value or our company is being undervalued. And so then right after that, there was another deal that came up to, to spin off exactly as this was the real estate portion of, of this. And that deal fell through. So, and now you've got another activist investor. So, you know, it's these... These investors who want to basically suck out as much money as they possibly can from the company. Uh, and I think it has much less to do about the long-term health of the company, uh, for better or for worse. I must confess, I was rather charmed by the fact that this activist investor who's, who's um, gone to a summit in New York City, uh, this uh, owner of Starboard Value, that's his company's name, he's called rather benignly Jeff Smith. <laughs> and I really quite like the idea of the murder 
Empire being shattered by a man called Jeff. It's 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 great. It's 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 got sinister undertones. It's 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 completely wonderful. I mean, I. I, I, I mean, I, I'm sort of, I guess, perversely gripped by the whole Murdoch dynasty drama. He, I'm from Adelaide, as is Rupert. That's our gift to humanity, is Rupert Murdoch. That is, you can blame the town of Adelaide for for what has happened in tabloid journalism in the US and Australia and and the UK over the last forty years. It completely lands at at our feet. Um, and there has been this debate, especially in Australia over the last 15 years, about who would end up on top in this sibling rivalry. And I think there was, for a long time, a sense that, that Lachlan was, he was out of the picture. You know, he left the organisation in a real huff. It seemed that James, the kind of the middle brother, was the one heading for the top. He was kind of saying and doing all the right things and was being sent off on training programs. And um but as it, as it has turned out, he's a bit too left-leaning for Rupert, I think. And Lachlan is a chip off the old block. Um, if you listen to Lachlan's politics, because there's this whole sense at the moment that maybe, you know, Foxes and News Corp's sort of politics will will dampen with Rupert's departure. I, I think that's foolish. I think we're going to see more of the same. Lachlan, Lachlan, when he talks about US politics, British politics, Australian politics, very much sounds like the old man. So I think politically, we're, we're going to see a lot of continuity here. Do you think the empire will be split up? I mean, first of all, what do we mean by split up? Because the Murdoch Trust, which is Rupert Murdoch and controlled by Rupert Murdoch and his four children, basically controlled more than 40% of the stock of both Fox and the News Corporation, which is one reason that it's so hard to kind of push things through that they're against. It's very hard to kind of rally all these other people of shares and voters to to surmount that. Um, and meanwhile, you know, they own both. So, <laughs> I mean, one of the reasons, if you go back, that uh, that some of the shareholders were against the merger was because they felt the company was undervalued and why should Murdoch get to buy his own company at a discount, you know? So, I mean, the empire is there, whether you've, you know, however, whatever the corporate structure is, and it's clearly, at this moment anyway, controlled by the Murdoch family. Um, and, and, I, and I completely agree with you that, uh, that I don't think there's going to be any shift in their political stance. One wonders whether we will ever see such a family and such an empire ever again on this earth. I mean, it's like not never say never, but it does look as if it is, it, it grew or it has grown to such a scale that there will be people who will say, well, we have to break this up. Otherwise, this is just globally unhealthy. Yeah, it's an old form of economic control. Um, family-based, uh, very closed, very opaque in, in many ways. Um, you know, and for a long time, really not beholden to shareholder sentiment. I think, you know, in what Paddy describes there, one of the interesting things is is the way that the whole economics around these kind of companies has changed drastically in the last 10 to 15 years with with much more clout giving to shareholders in, in terms of what they can dictate in terms of corporate behaviour. That's not the way Rupert used to run, run the show. It, it was very dictatorial. It was very dynastic in that. 
that sense, but 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 the the kind of tectonic economic plates have sort of shifted around. I mean, one of the things that Lachlan inherits almost from day one, apart from this headache of, of the kind of Fox News Corp relationship, are these massive lawsuits that, that Fox faces uh, around the last US election. They've already paid out nearly $750 million um, in one of the lawsuits around the voting machines. They've got a second one, which could be even larger. Um, that That's his father's gift to him as, as he comes into the chairmanship, is to kind of start to deal with the legal mess um, that Fox in particular has, has got the organisation into. So it's it's choppy waters for the for the new CEO. Finally, Patty, you were talking a little bit earlier on about trying to make the complicated understandable. Well, that's actually up to subject of our final item tonight. And um, uh, Phil, would you be so kind as to pick up the piece of paper? Because I'm going to cue you because we're on the radio and I need you to read something out loud for me. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, try this for size. When Rolls-Royce announced the loss of 2,500 jobs this week, the company CEO issued this statement. Over to you, Phil. Be, could you momentarily be the company CEO of Rolls-Royce? I will, I will, I will chide my my <laughs> finest Rolls Royce CEO tone. This is another step on our multi-year transformation journey to build a high-performing, competitive, resilient, and growing Rolls Royce. Just in case we didn't quite catch that, um, could you possibly read it again for us, Phil, so we can get it, we can absorb it in full? This is another step on our multi-year transformation journey to build a high-performing, competitive, resilient, and growing Rolls Royce. Patty. What do you think that means? So that means we're firing 2,500 people. (laughs) (laughs) We're talking about corporate jargon here, and we're going to devote the last few minutes of today's program into the joys and the nightmares of when things are written, almost either deliberately or unintentionally, to make us not understand a darned word of it. When you listen to the This Is Another Step on a multi-year transformation journey to build a high-performing, competitive, resilient and growing growing Rolls-Royce, what do you think that the comms team has been doing uh, in the run-up to the the publication of of that statement? I suspect that there's quite a few people in the room. Oh, absolutely. Uh, but, you know, this is this is what they're paid to do. Un- unfortunately, it seems that among those layoffs, the comms team is not going to be among them. <laughs> <laughs> and when you're dealing, uh, we, before we came on air, was, we were talking about, you know, how we were going to approach this. And one of the things that I do when I go to the New York Times is I am a reader, I'm a subscriber, let's be clear, clear about that. But I come to the New York Times for people like you to act as a translator, for me. I mean, how much of that are you encountering in your daily sort of slash through the jungle of economic news? I mean, this beat in particular, and I, I've been at the Times for more than 25 years and I've written about everything you can think of, but economics uh, is one sector industry, academics is another, where, you know, there's a high premium on kind of lingo and and particular framework um, and you've said framework. That's jargon in that's itself. That's right. Yes, that's, that's jargon too. <laughs> one point I, I have off. to say, you know, in fact, actually, you know, you make a good point because I feel one of the, you know, when you when you come to a new beat, you're learning a lot, and there's a lot you don't know. And obviously, I know a lot more than when I first started. On the other hand, though, you begin to kind of internalize a lot of this jargon 
yourself. And I have found myself really needing to check my own writing to make sure I get it out. Where in the beginning, I didn't know what it meant, so I didn't use any of it. Um, but that I, I think that's the good thing about having kind of a non-specialist sometimes coming to something, because you see it with a fresh eye. But, but definitely in economics, you know, it, and it's not only, I mean, with that, it's not only the the terms themselves. I mean, the, the, things are complicated. <laughs> it's, a, it's a difficult thing, isn't it? Because you, you end up having to, as a broadcaster, I end up having to talk to people who I always think are intelligent but ignorant, which is, if you've taken the time to have a listen to the Monocle Daily, then you must have a pretty high level of curiosity and intelligence and you want to know what's going on in the world. But the ignorance actually is, is based entirely on the fact that you have a knowledge gap. And so it is a huge challenge, isn't it? Now, you in the business of teaching people, filling in those knowledge gaps, Phil, how hard is it for you sometimes to teach students something that they will understand, including the depth as well as the breadth? But then when you're getting when you're marking their essays, what's coming back at you? Yeah, it's remarkable. I mean, I've seen sentences like this Rolls Royce <laughs> one in, in essays that I've marked, but I, I've I've also seen it in some of my colleagues' writing. I mean, it's you know, it's a real challenge in academia of you know this sense of dealing sometimes with really arcane knowledge, very very specialist technical lingo that's understood by your colleagues. But we also, as academics, have this public function. You know, me sitting in this studio, I guess, is a small sort of way of doing that, where, where you're, you're you're not only trying to translate what you're working on uh, to your students, but you're you're trying to do it out in the public domain. And the job then is to get rid of this kind of language and, and, and express complicated things simply and digestibly. I, I always worry if I see something that it's waffly as that, that either the person saying it doesn't really understand what they're talking about, or in this case related to Rolls-Royce, that there's something really nasty that's being hidden here, that there's a kind of corporate language technique, which is to use very vague nouns that slip off the tongue very smoothly to hide something that is really brutal. I mean, as Patty said before, probably the retrenchment. And in fact, even that word, <laughs> the sacking, yeah. the sacking I mean, of people I mean, or restructure is the one that we love in academia. Everything's about a restructure, which makes it seem very benign. But often I think there are very unbenign things being, I mean, being look, hidden this, by this. George Orwell talked about this decades ago, politics of the English language. And it's it's governments, it's businesses, it's it's academia. I mean, as you mentioned, I think probably your colleagues are more guilty of it probably than your students. And it usually and it does get rewarded by because graduate students are supposed to write and talk in this way. Uh, that's that really puts a veil over uh, rather than making clear understanding. And I mean this is clearly trying to turn, you know, th this message is for Wall Street that Rolls-Royce put out. It, it's not for the public. It's it's for, you know, we're looking to make more profits and we don't care, you know, if we fire people to do it. Well, in the final minutes that we've got remaining on today's program, I thought we might enjoy um, just going through a couple of personal favourites here at Monocle. One I absolutely adore is um, when Theresa May had sort of taken over the burning coals of the Brexit project and was trying to hold them in public um, and was trying to explain to a rather sort of shell-shocked um, country uh, what exactly was about to happen. Uh, so we're going back to 2016. It's just past the Brexit vote. Let's have a listen to what she had to say. It's not about this sort of Brexit or that sort of Brexit. It's about a red, white and blue Brexit. That is the right Brexit, the right deal for Britain. I do love a red, white and blue Brexit. That was wonderful. 
That was someone who didn't have any examples to back up her message, was it? You're just sitting there with an absolutely empty vessel. What did you think of that? I mean, well, you know, you probably followed all of this a lot closer back in the day. And I can't believe all these years later, it's still such an issue that's coming up. But yes, I, w- I was about to ask you, what is a red, white, blue Brexit? <laughs> I mean, it's 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 a Brexit wrapped around with the, the British flag, I guess, wrapped around it, or the American flag, for that matter. It's that, it is that absolute issue, isn't it, that she had nothing to say. And she had, more importantly, she had no examples to back up what she was trying to say. She had no clue what she was doing. And so to sort of invoke an emotional response response was, was her best efforts. What did you think of that? Film? Yeah, the, the, the recourse to nationalism when in trouble, you know, the, the leap, leap for the flag, at, at almost in a kind of panicked gesture. And, it's, and, and, and the frightening thing is that Theresa May was, was not the worst of the Tory leaders at the time trying to obfuscate what was really going on with Brexit. I mean, she herself, I, you know, I think probably had at least some sort of nascent Remainer tendencies about her and was, you know, trying desperately to sell an idea that she really hadn't really been responsible for. Unlike like some of her colleagues who, who had deliberately crafted this thing and were out there trying to tell us that it was it was going to be sunlit uplands and all, all, all the other nonsense. Yeah, they were, they, they were worse than her. Let's have another quick li- listen to uh, someone trying to say something when they actually haven't got anything to say. Here's Kamala Harris in uh, last year talking to the ASEAN countries on climate change, which is obviously something that no one can really quite get to grips with and understand. So this is how Kamala Harris has a go. We will work together and continue to work together to address these issues, to tackle these challenges, and to work together as we continue to work operating from the new norms, rules, and agreements that we will convene to work together on. Patty. I, I, you know, I have a feeling she lost her place in the speech because <laughs> there, there really that seems that at the end it seems almost this non sequitur that's that's in there. Uh, but of course, the theme is we're going to work together to work together so that we can work together. Great intentions. I mean, she's not work shy. Let's be honest. <laughs> no, it's. It- it's it's still grates on the ears uh, after all this time, and you can you can all, it's a little bit like the Theresa May one. You can hear the panic in her voice <laughs> yes. of oh my goodness, I've gone down this linguistic tunnel. How do I get out of this? And what I'll do is just repeat myself and repeat myself and repeat myself and just hope people aren't listening or I can move on to something else. So, Except when you're that high profile, it's much easier said than done. So this is more an accident rather than de- the deliberate crafting of Rolls-Royce nonsense or or Theresa May having been given a slogan that she had to pin her soul to. I think the Rolls-Royce one is really frightening in, in how deliberate it was, how strategic it was. These, these others are... I, I mean, they do reveal, I think, politicians who who have not grasped the solution that they are trying to articulate. I think that there is something substantive there, that there is a sense that they don't have an answer either to Brexit or to climate change. And so the, the waffle is not accidental, um, but, but, but there's something less kind of deliberate and sinister in, in those moments than, than what I see in the Rolls-Royce one. I mean, I guess the only thing I would differ is to say that, oh, well, they're, they, they don't really have an argument. I, I do think the, the ambiguity, the vagueness is on purpose. I mean, these are high-profile characters. They know everything they're going to say. And it's much worse to say something substantive that might be controversial than to say nothing at all <laughs> in very vague terms. So 
I do think a lot of these, uh, and, and I agree with you that the, the Rolls Royce thing is different, but but a lot of these speeches are crafted to basically not say anything <laughs> new. Perhaps by uh, explanation, let's move to our final clip. Um, a program, a comedy, a political satire in the United Kingdom called The Thick of It. I think it became Veep in the US. Um, there is a conversation of three panicked ministerial assistants in a car when they actually have to go to a press conference where they actually don't have anything to announce. Um, and this is how they approach it. So, ladies and gentlemen, this is fiction, but I think it's perhaps summed up everything we've just said in the last five minutes. On target, yes. under budget. Coal face politics. Coal, absolutely, yes, I like that. Not that's wasting very good. resources. No, that's good. Let's do that. Let's, Let's do, do that. that. Let's yes. go for that. We trick them. Yes. We trick them. A tinselly thing, and they come along, and then we say, ha yeah. ha. Ha ha, indeed. Thank you so much to my guests today. Uh, Phil Clark and Patricia Cohen. That's all we have time for today's edition of the Monocle Daily. Uh, thanks also to our producer Isabella Jewell and researcher Harrison Warlock. Our sound engineer was Sarah Nichol. I'm Emma Nelson here in London. The Monocle Daily is back at the same time tomorrow. Goodbye. Thank you very much for listening. Listener.